0: Welcome to the Lancet podcast. My name is Aaron Van Dorn, speaking to you from the Lancet's New York office. The U.S. has seen a recent surge in opioid drug use, and with one of the world's largest prison populations, it raises the obvious question of what to do with opioid drug users undergoing methadone treatment who run afoul of the criminal justice system. I spoke with Dr. Josiah Jody Rich of Boston University about the problem. When patients in methadone maintenance treatment are arrested, nearly 90% find themselves in forced withdrawal or even immediate cessation of treatment. Your study looked at the prisoners entering into both a forced withdrawal and continued methadone maintenance treatments. What were your findings?
1: What we found was that in the one-month results after release from incarceration, that those people who had been forced off of methadone, nearly half of them did not make it back to methadone treatment in that month after release, whereas the vast majority of those on methadone continued on to methadone usually the following day after release
0: what are the consequences of these results
1: when people take methadone for the disease of opioid dependence or addiction to opiates and when they stop taking opiates they lose their tolerance and when they lose their tolerance a dose that they normally could tolerate can become fatal so Unfortunately, rates of overdose death after release from incarceration are among the highest at any point in people's disease trajectory of opioid dependence. So, this is actually the worst time to not have protection from overdose, is in the first month or even months after release from incarceration. So, people who are on methadone and are able to continue successfully on methadone and transition back to methadone as they are released back to the community are protected against overdose death. Now, of course, they're also protected against relapsing to drugs, and that means less likely to participate in crime and other high-risk behaviors.
0: You mentioned in the paper that 90% of methadone users who are arrested are either forced into tapered methadone withdrawal programs or are more likely an abrupt termination of methadone treatment. Why did you choose to study in a facility that used the tapered methadone withdrawal program instead of the more common abrupt termination?
1: Well, I have been practicing medicine at the Rhode Island Department of Corrections as a consultant for the last 21 years on a weekly basis. So I'm much more familiar with the program here in Rhode Island. But to do this kind of study, there's actually, a, as part of their protocol, made this a, a, an ethical study to do because we needed time to explain the study to potential participants and get their permission to enroll in the study. Now. When the study was done, people who were incarcerated in Rhode Island were kept on their same dose for the first week and then began to taper. So that week gave us the opportunity to meet with the people, explain them what the study was, and ask them if they would like to enroll. And if we waited until after that week, then they would already start to taper from the methadone, and that would cause predictable discomfort from withdrawal from methadone. And we believe that at that point, it would not be ethical to ask somebody if they would like to participate in the study because they would be essentially coerced by their discomfort of withdrawal.
0: Who ultimately makes the policy decisions about prisoners' medical care? Is it state lawmakers or are medical professionals making these decisions for them?
1: That's a very good question. We have tight regulation of the health care that's provided in the community. We have the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Health Care and other regulatory bodies and insurers that all monitor and carefully watch. Behind bars, we don't have a similar system. So we have thousands of correctional facilities across the country, and it's done in many, many different ways. And in general, we do not have good oversight of health care behind bars. Now, the Supreme Court in 1976 ruled in Estelle v. Gamble that to not provide community-standard health care was a cruel and unusual punishment and therefore is prohibited by the Constitution. That ruling and the similar ones spawned a series of litigations that over the years have led to dramatic improvements in health care given to prisoners. So it's really not a regulatory environment that has uh, led to improvements in healthcare or decisions about healthcare it's really more of a contiguous environment that's really what forces things and and also I, I would have to say that we are in the midst of an epidemic of incarceration in this country and there's some really outstanding correctional healthcare providers and correctional administrators and correctional professionals who are trying to do the best with the resources they have in a very challenging population you know our Prisons and jails were designed to house uh, healthy adult male criminals. And what we have now is a population that is burdened with addiction, with mental illness, with many other problems, health problems, social problems, psychiatric and psychological problems, and, and addiction, and health and directional professionals are trying to do the best they can with the resources they have
0: what would your recommendation to policymakers be regarding the treatment of methadone using inmates?
1: Well, as a society, we have a stake in what happens behind bars and in the outcomes that occur. And I think that, you know, a lot of things are done because that's the way we've always done them and without really thinking about the outcomes. Now, in this situation, we have this policy, which is really out of line with any other setting. And I can can't think of any other place where people are uh, uniformly removed from a prescribed treatment, you know, medically prescribed treatment for no apparent clinical reason. So what are the outcomes that we have? Well, I think this study has shown that the you know, one major outcome is that people are much less likely to get back into this proven, highly effective treatment that can lead to reduced overdose death, reduced drug use, improved health, reduced HIV transmission, reduced crime. So I think we now have an instance where we have very good evidence that stopping this treatment, at least for those incarcerated less than six months, does not make any clinical public health or public safety sense. And so I think in that light, we should think about changing policies across the country and maybe in other parts of the world to think about linking people up to treatment rather than taking them off of treatment.
0: One of the major concerns in your paper is the loss of opioid tolerance and the increase of drug-related deaths following incarceration. Short of a major change in policy to continue methadone treatment while patients are incarcerated, what can institutions do to mitigate the risk of accidental drug overdose death following release?
1: The overdose epidemic in the United States is been dramatic over the past decade and Rhode Island overdose is killing more people than suicides murders and traffic accidents combined it's a really emergent and uh, tragic situation and criminally justice involved populations have a disproportionate share of that burden of uh, overdose death but uh, we are kind of scrambling to to identify the best treatment certainly getting people into drug treatment is important and methadone is among the one of the treatments that uh, can reduce uh, overdose Deaths. There's been a lot of study of the use of naloxone or Narcan, which is an antidote for an overdose. And that's been highly effective in a number of populations. So certainly, I think the standard of care should be that anyone who has a history of opioid dependence who is leaving an incarcerated setting, I would also add a medical setting including a detox or drug treatment program, that they be educated about the risks of overdose death and ways to prevent and avoid overdose death. And given the tools, the, the naloxone and the ability to give it, along with their family members and and colleagues and friends, so that uh, in the event that a tragedy of an overdose occurs, that a rescue can happen.
0: Is there anything else our listeners should know about your study?
1: Taking a step back from this study and looking at a broader sense of what's going on, particularly in the United States, but also in many other countries of the world with high rates of incarceration, we should, as a society, ask, what are we incarcerating people for? what are we trying to achieve and then we should look at it and and ask ourselves are we achieving that you know i think we have this sort of general notion that we have these laws and if you break the laws you should uh, you know you do the crime you do the time but that applies if you have rational people who can follow rules when somebody is addicted to opioids or other medications they do not behave in rational ways. The, the very disease itself impacts their decision making and the types of activities they do. Now that doesn't mean that they don't have any ability to control this. They certainly get in, can get into treatment, and treatment is highly effective, for, particularly for opiates and other addictions as well. And so we need to take a look at the root causes of incarceration and try and address those to reduce not only incarceration but reduce all the negative outcomes related to addiction. I think. You know, to just say, well, you know, they did such and such a crime, so they should be locked up for this amount of time has led us to the situation where we have, we have now, where we're the lead incarcerator for the entire world. And we haven't, you know, that's tremendously expensive and we haven't gotten what we want, which is we want public safety, we want public health, we want a society where people get along and don't hurt each other.
0: Well, Dr. Rich, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today.
1: Oh, thank you.